Hey, welcome to the Rain and Morale podcast. So do you ever feel like screaming out in the office on Zoom or outside the school gates? For the love of God, come on, really? Then if this is you and you're looking for an honest, fun and frank podcast on life and business, then sit back and listen to me, Rain and Morale. I'll be bringing great people on the show to talk, share and debate their life experiences and business challenges. Keeping the show unpolished, but in a fun and unique British style with sarcasm, tenacity, maybe a few swear words or tears. This podcast keeps it real, honest, raw, and removes the bullshit in the only way I know how, through authenticity and getting shit done. Think of it less like the Housewives of New York or TOWIE with the lipo and drama, and more like the house lives of the real world. I hope you'll take something away to be better informed, laugh, smile, or maybe even finally get in the confidence to shout, come on, really. So enjoy. Hi, Saul. Welcome to the Rhone and Morel podcast. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Awesome. So for the listeners, I'm delighted to welcome Saul Wainwright, who's based in Cape Town. And as we're recording this, he has a beautiful view of the ocean and a lovely um, South African summer. And I am facing frosty and minus three. So that's the different worlds we're living in right right now. But I'm delighted to have Saul, um, who is the chief financial officer uh, for the Sun Exchange, which I'm going to let Saul explain because it's such a cool concept. But Saul's background is really, really varied, but over 20 years experience helping lots of young companies from tech, manufacturer, retail, um, mainly in the back office, FinOps kind of solutions area. Um, And what we really want to talk about today is the the challenges around impact funding, especially to, in, in sort of today's ecosystem. But Saul, firstly, I would love you to explain to the listeners a little bit more about the Sun Exchange. Sure. Thank you so much, Rona. Yeah, so the Sun Exchange has been around since about 2016. Uh, we're a tech platform that enables individuals anywhere in the world to become part owners of solar power plants in the emerging uh, markets of the world. Uh, Our ambition is to have uh, solar power plants built uh, all around the world so that you as a owner of power plants can earn a revenue stream from your uh, power production around the world 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. Um, Our particular focus up to this point has been on high social impact businesses. So we focused on schools, retirement villages, uh, agriculture, and small and medium enterprises. And we enable those enterprises and schools and whatnot to go solar for zero capital upfront and pay a lower than um, utility, than the public utility rate for their electricity. Uh, so we both help businesses lower their operating costs while reducing the carbon emissions of the South African grid, which is one of the uh, most carbon intensive grids in, in the world. Uh, the company came out of the original uh, inspiration of the founder, who was, is Abraham Cambridge, who came to South Africa from the UK, where he built a, a couple solar companies 
And he was flying into Cape Town, looking at all the rooftops and wondering why no one had solar when you're sitting in one of the sunniest places in the world. Uh, soon he figured out that that problem was really getting access to capital. How can schools, um, small businesses and the like get access to affordable capital and run and maintain a solar power plant? Um, so after exploring the market and seeing that there were none of those solutions, he landed on the idea of marrying a crowdfunding type environment with a crypto environment so that you could make micropayments, rental income, and distribute it around the world. And that's how we landed up with this tech platform. Over the last six or seven years, we've built close to 70 power uh, plants on about um, most of those, about close to half of those have been on public schools, mostly in the Western Cape. We now have 40,000 people in 180 countries that participate in our platform, and about eight to 9,000 of them are active owners of power plants. Um, as it stands now, Sun Exchange is really well positioned to expand tremendously. We have a huge pipeline where, you know, the, the ongoing energy crisis in South Africa, where we have at, currently we're dealing with about eight to 10 hours a day of no power um throughout the grid and so there's a real urgency to bring in solar and storage solutions mm. uh, and the conversation really starts shifting away from cost savings to reliable power and the only way you can do that is starting to bring in storage so there's been a really big push in towards batteries and bring in storage in which will over the medium term impact the broader grid in a positive um Way. So Sun Exchange stands at this at this intersection where it's about to really expand. It's looking to bring in more funders into our into our mix, more mm. individuals, more corporates to fund our uh, growing pipeline. Um, Amazing. So so to kind of keep it really simple, if I wanted to, I could kind of fund a couple of solar panels because you do it by panel, don't you? And you can and Correct. then. I can basically potentially earn an income from that ongoing. Um, and that's how you're able to do it capital free, I guess, for Correct. the communities Correct. Um, locally. Yeah. So basically, um, you as a buyer would come to the platform and you can buy as many. We actually do it on a solar cell basis. So it can be as cheap as three, four, five pounds. Um, and you can come and buy one solar cell or you can buy a hundred solar cells or a thousand solar cells or as many as you want in that project. And you then rent, essentially you're renting the, 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 that solar panel to the energy consumer who's paying you a monthly rental income and you receive that monthly rental income and you can receive it in South African rands or in Bitcoin, or you can accumulate it and reinvest it and grow your total asset base of revenue generating solar. So it takes it, it's available to anyone at a very, very low entry cost. And just out of interest, just, just thinking out loud, is anyone kind of getting to the point where they're giving their solar panels to the actual communities themselves? Because I guess essentially it's okay for people who can afford to fund them or buy them and earn an income, but what's the kind of balance going forward around actually the people themselves owning their own solar cells so they've got you know con control over that 
Yeah, no, I think it's a it's a it's a great question, and it's something we're we're beginning to explore. What would it look like to put together a kind of a donor based model um, in in the EU environment and and in the UK um, that that enabled that? So what we've done to begin that is we've we've reached out into the more corporate sector. So we have some big corporate players who are coming and donating some of their donor funds or their CSR funds or their carbon offset funds into a high social impact project. So identifying poor schools or uh, retirement or other businesses in areas that are are energy compromised or, or cost compromised. And so, yes, there is that. Now you can also choose to donate all of your revenues to an identified uh, nonprofit, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the school gets the direct uh, benefit of it. The important thing, though, to remember is that somebody still has to pay something every month because that is a an asset that needs to be maintained and cared for. So there are operating costs. It is a power plant as opposed to a, a, a wall or a driveway or even a, 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 some kind of other infrastructure. So there's always somebody has to pay something. But yes, we've done projects with schools where large corporates have come in, donated 99% of the, the funds, and we're able to sell that electricity for very, very cheap to the school to just yeah. operating costs. Awesome. And so I guess for a lot of people who don't really know about um, what you touched on earlier about load shedding, I, I believe it's re- referred to, uh, we don't really hear about it here in the UK on, on the news. But if you could explain just in brief what it what it means when you say we don't have any power for eight to 10 hours a day and how that's impacting um, everyone across um, uh, South Africa. Yeah, so I mean, I do think it's similar to what you guys have experienced or your government has warned you you're going to experience in the in the depth of winter where just basically the public utility cannot generate sufficient power to meet the demand of, of the grid, of the economy. Um, and that's happening on a daily basis in South Africa. Um, so we have many, many megawatts, uh, a gap between the demand and the supply. Um, and that gap means that the, the the utility cannot provide sufficient power to meet everyone's demands. And if they left the grid on completely, the demand would outstrip the supply and collapse the grid. Um, and if a grid collapses, it takes you several weeks to bring a grid back up. Um, so what they're doing now is essentially rolling blackouts. So in neighborhoods around the country, they switch off supplying power to certain parts of the grid. And we have a, a, a little app that you can go look at. And it says you're going to lose power today from 2 to 4, 12 to 6. Then, you know, you're on stage and they move through different stages depending on how much demand and supply there is. Um, it's a it's a sad state of affairs. Um, and it means for a lot of businesses, they literally cannot operate. So you, a coffee shop can't make its espressos. An ice cream shop can't keep its ice cream frozen. Uh, a bottling company can't keep its furnaces going to create bottles. A brewery can't 
keep making beer because it can't, you know, keep its digesters going. So it impacts all through the economy in multiple, multiple ways and stacks up. Schools can't operate. Hospitals struggle to meet the, the gen, you know, they have to run generators. So now they're running diesel and the costs of diesel have gone through the roof as the global economy has, has, has gone through its struggle. So it just, it just kind of, uh, it's like a, a cancer into the economy. Absolutely. And so one of, one of the things that, you know, I read a lot about is this, look, solar can't, can, it can in no way um, give enough power uh, to, to replace fossil fuels. Now, obviously, you're in a really unique situation at the moment. You know, we were lucky. We, we, we've had a very mild winter. We've had a couple of weeks that were pretty brassic. Um but we've we've not yet got to that point where where that you know supply and demand. But what's your thoughts on you know is it just skepticism because we don't want to move away from fossil fuels or actually you know is is the move to solar at the minute is really just bridging a gap between the increased demand from global consumption. So how do you see it as a business? really shifting that dial away from carbon intensive to you know more sustainable energy yeah look i mean i i i don't know specifically but i'm pretty sure that um the world could supply to energy demands probably through solar whether that solar could all be deployed in europe to meet europeans to energy demands or it have to be deployed in the sahara desert and and piped across i don't know but I think that the 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 only way to really think about it is a, a, an energy mix. So it's about being site specific. So does it really make sense for British people to put solar panels on their roofs? No, you you get much more bang for your buck if you put solar panels on roofs in Africa and reduced Africa's energy and, and carbon intensive demands and maybe kept using natural gas there because your system already kind of, you know, uh, uh, is built around that and, and bringing other efficiencies. You know, when you look at Africa, you're talking about environments where there aren't grids. What are people doing? They're chopping down trees and using coal. Where if you could put a solar panel in, in South Africa or a solar panel in London, you're going to offset a kilogram per kilowatt hour in South Africa. And in England, you might put offset half as much carbon and you'll get half as much power. So, you know, maybe England's better for wind. Uh, maybe, you know, maybe there are other options. So I, I think the best way to think about it is an over-reliance on a single solution is a problem. A diversified energy mix is a far more robust and resilient system. It reduces political economic tensions because you're like, well, fine, we don't need to take all of X's oil because we can shift our load over to this kind of energy. So I think that that a, a, a creative approach to the problem rather than one that's that's driven by vested interests is probably the 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 best way to get to a solution no absolutely and i guess from a, an african point of view or an emerging markets point of view the great thing is you haven't got infrastructure so therefore you're not trying to navigate through a system that's so historical in in what you've got so actually if the emerging markets can develop their power energy health education by i guess 
our mistakes, our failures, or whatever we might want to call it, thought what we thought we were doing the right things, then is it is it fair to say that now the price of solar is at such a price that we can build infrastructures in emerging markets in a cost-effective way? Because it is more expensive now to maybe build those communities through a classic electrical um, infrastructure. Correct. You can't you can't deploy that easily in Africa. You don't have a grid. So most of Africa lacks grids. And in order to build large power plants, whether they be fossil fuel based, nuclear based, and even large scale solar utility, you've got to have high voltage distribution lines. You've got to build huge infrastructure. Africa doesn't have that. And it's very, very dispersed. It has huge, it's a huge continent with huge open space in between urban populations. So you can't reliably do that. In And if you take what scientists are saying about the timeline we have to begin offsetting carbon emissions, you can't take 20 or 30 years. How long did it take Europe to build its grid and North America to build its grid? A long time, right? And it was a combination of private and public and, you know, all kinds of, 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 machinations to get to what it has today um my view in this you know and i, I sat in, in i was in davos last year and i was sitting at a, a table with a bunch of people from around the world and they were talking about smart grids and european renewable energy all of which i think is valuable and i ray but i raised the counters like look if you guys deployed that 20 million billion euros you're going to do to smart grid into emerging markets where people are using coal and diesel and wood and gave them solar, you might have a much bigger impact on the carbon emissions of, of the total world. And, and then the count is like, well, you know, Europeans and Americans use, have the largest footprint because they're the biggest consumers. Agreed. But most of the carbon that comes that Europeans uh, carbon footprint is in the supply chain. Where does most of your goods come from? The emerging markets, right? Exactly. Yeah. And then the further counter is, okay, fine, build solar for yourselves, but then mine that out of Europe, build lithium mines and cobalt mines and whatnot in Europe. Because what's happening now is that they're mining in the Congo and the environmental devastation is huge. Nobody's really paying attention to that. And so, you know, I think these things are always more complex than we like to look at the the front end. And and our view at Sun Exchange is it makes the best sense to deploy carbon-free or or carbon-reduced energy supply in emerging markets where you've got the youngest populations, where you've got the fastest growing economies, where you've got the biggest impact on supply chains, and you can have the most immediate impact without anything that's existing. No, I I, I totally agree. And I think as part of our duty to let the global south grow, it makes sense that actually if we're going to move to all these battery, solar, wind, and we need raw materials from mining, which guess what? We're not going to find them here. Um, then yes, that should be at least in some way a counterbalance of, of building that structure there to, to mine. So anyways, I, I know we could go down a rabbit hole on this one, but no, I, I absolutely agree. Listen, something I wanted to replay back to you, it's something that triggered why I wanted to chat to you. And 
it was really a statement around kind of the challenges that we face for funding. And we touched on it a little bit just then. Really, it's about, in a way, a lot of self-centeredness, isn't it? It's like, I've got to I've got to reduce my carbon. It's my numbers and I'll outsource it and pretend that didn't happen and supply chain, all of these things. But something that was said when, when a group of us was chatting was that investors still want exit strategies. Um, they want multiples and a sure thing. In the end, impacts and ESG don't get funded. Investors still focus on returns and the risk for them is losing their money, not environmental impacts or ESG. As brutal as that sounds, that's the harsh reality when we're looking at funding. So how do you as a CFO working in a business that's DNA is about impact and, you know, solar energy how do you keep motivated every day what sort of conversations are you having to to turn the dial of that way of thinking you know it's it's um you know the 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 the, to answer that i'm going to kind of step back a little bit in my own trajectory right so you know um i've always I've always wondered around how economies grow and what motivates economies and businesses and individuals to to be successful or to build things in certain environments. And this came out of a a very early kind of juxtaposition I experienced. I grew up in South Africa until I was about 15, and I moved from Cape Town to the United States, to to San Francisco, and I went to high school there and university and everything, and and it really kind of was jarring to see one part of the world that was at one stage of economic development, and even within it in South Africa, there's multiple stages, and then you go to America and you see something very different, and so I was completely fascinated by what are the motivating factors in there. And I went on and I studied political economics at Berkeley and I, you know, did research into into, uh, um, the movement of South African companies into the rest of Africa on the back of the idea of African Renaissance, which was Thabo and Becky's idea of almost impact investing. And this was the beginning of impact investing, the idea of triple bottom line really came out of South Africa in the King Report's and the effort to start looking at how do you utilize vehicles of the state at that time to create more social development and how do you measure that and what are the factors and all of that. So this conversation, you know, is 25 years old kind of of thing, right? Um, And I journeyed through that and and living in the Bay Area in the early 2000s, there was a real rise around impact investing and so social capital markets. And that whole principle was really, really growing. And I worked with a bunch of organizations at that time trying to figure it out. And it was in the Bay Area and it was really about, you know, we're trying to use money to solve problems and we're trying to build better work cultures. And we're trying to, you know, there are all these problem solving, like really focusing business on on, on problem solving. And I spent, you know, 10 plus years, 15 years in, in, in Silicon Valley doing this. And Eventually, I got really um, despondent by the situation in Silicon Valley because it started really moving away from 
wow, how can technology and money and all of these ideas solve real problems in the world too? How do we sell more Levi's on Instagram? Oh, that's a problem. Let's solve that. Oh, you know, how do we help uh, people organize their paperwork better? Oh, let's solve that problem. You know, all these weird things. That are problems, but when you zoom out, you're like, really? Is that a problem? Like, maybe we're focusing on the wrong problem. But, oh, look, there's all this money piling into solving these problems that aren't real problems. Meanwhile, in the background, we're talking about environmental issues, human rights issues, all these big problems. And so, you know, I, my wife and I decided at that point, like, you know what? Why stay in the Bay Area? You have to learn lots of money, working for companies that aren't really solving any problems. What's the purpose? Like, what am I really doing? I have this interest in, 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 in the problems of the world and solving them and how economies and businesses can do that. So we came back to South Africa with our kids and I started looking for businesses here in South Africa that had kind of so, social impact. And the real interesting thing is when you look at the South African startup ecosystem is that a vast majority of the businesses are solving real problems problems mm-hmm. that impact day-to-day lives not business process efficiency problems but how does a a working mother living in a township get to her off to her job in the city when she doesn't know when the taxis are going to run or how do can you build timetables that are tracking the movement of taxis so that people can plan their day and use their time more efficiently. So they're not spending six hours on public yeah. transport, maybe three. Fast forward, I land up at Sun Exchange and here's Sun Exchange, right? Trying to solve a real problem. Carbon emissions and schools without reliable power and not and a broken capital market. And yeah. so, you know, what drives me every day is that I am working in a business that's actually solving problems. Like when Side we get a new project, right? When we get a new project and it goes live and, you know, you know you've now helped this organization get access to cleaner, reliable power and I've actually solved the problem. We, we as an organization solved 70 problems for 70 organizations that probably represent tens of thousands of people. That's the motivation, right? Um, And and, and that's different from my other experience. So it's just, for me, it's an alignment between a long-running historical passion and real-world on-the-ground solutions being realized on a daily basis almost. And I guess as as someone who um, kind of, shares those obviously ultimately those those passions we have seen a big shift i think i'm just looking at some stats here we have seen um a huge shift in 2021 and 2022 into climate tech funding however whilst that is exciting there's been nearly a 90 percent increase it's it's are we able to look at that really and say is this climate tech a lot of the stuff that's you know this 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 tech that's going to save us when actually we have got a lot of the answers already. So it's great that it's going in that trajectory. What I can't see from that um, really is what sort of tech that's, that's going into. So one of the things that I was um, looking at recently was how, if we do know solar works, we do know that it's now as cheap to, to install as, as anything else. 
And also we've got, you know, this, this carbon removal tech, which apparently can work. My question really is to the, to the wider sort of governments, I guess, and communities is, why isn't this going absolutely everywhere? Why are you, you know, effectively and the business why, why aren't you falling over people coming on your door and going, here's a million, here's an infrastructure, build this, build that, because we know it works. I can only conclude that for the last 500 years, you know, be it consumerism or capitalism, always wins. So the, the minority pushing that focus of growth and profit seems to outstrip and win every time. How are we going to change that dial? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a it's a fundamental challenge that sits before, I think, the, the, the global economy and society. How do you direct capital towards things that may not show financial viability, but have social viability or environmental viability? Um, and, you know, as an economist, I understand why... Uh, funders need to know that they're going to get a return because the economy is built on, you know, uh, debt-based money that requires interest returns and inflationary offsetting. And and you've got you've just got you know otherwise the system has fundamental uh, lands up being fundamentally flawed as it stands now as it's constructed now. Something in that construct needs to shift, right? And and. And you know, when when we when, you know when we go out and we try to get funded, now there, there's two routes of funding that we explore. There's one that's you know equity fund sun exchanges operations allow a, a fund our, our crowdfunding tech platform so we can bring a million people individuals to it and you know a hundred thousand businesses around the world um, to 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 build. Uh, solar, you know, that's one side of it. And then the other side is, hey, we've got all these people out here that need solar and you can fund the solar projects. And on both sides of the that equation, we have people analyzing risk from the point of view of profitability. Mm. And they're saying, well, you know, maybe that business won't survive five years or maybe you guys won't survive five years or something like that. And then what? And da, da, da. so we need more money or we can't do that or we've got to do, you know, and there are all these these caveats. But many of these funders at the same time push themselves forward and say, we're around impact and we want to, you know, have a positive impact on the on the carbon future of the world and reduce carbon. That's their forward statement, but at the end, they they want financial sure. security. And and for me, it's 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 ultimately about you know what is the focus of the global society? What is the true risk that we're we're trying to mitigate? If that risk, if we decide we believe the scientists, and they say you've got five years to reduce the carbon emissions by fifty percent. Yeah. Surely the risk you're calculating is, do we hit that 50% or not? Not, will this business be surviving in five years? Because, you know, maybe the business won't survive, but the solar system will, and the solar system will still be producing power, and you can still push it into the grid, and, you know, and yeah, maybe yeah. you won't have any returns. But from what I can tell, if we don't solve this problem in 10 years, who cares what your returns are? 
because the whole thing's going to go, you know. Yeah. It's going to go, it's going to blow up. The whole thing's going to start. All those businesses you think you knew were survive, able to survive won't be able to survive because the economy will shift because the environment has shifted so much that agriculture's not happening in the way. There's droughts, there's floods, there's, you know. Yeah. So I, you know, and, and I think that the same thing is, but the truth is we haven't changed this conversation much in the world, you know, whether it be about human rights or pollution or, you know, the economy still looks for economically and financially viable solutions, irrespective of the externalized risks. And that I understand from the broader economy. What I can't understand is why funders in the sector that proclaim to want to Im focus on this impact don't elevate that in their analysis. No, ex ex exactly. I, 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 think I was going to say, I don't know. When I was younger, I thought I knew, but I've got older. older. <laughs> you know, like maybe my ego, you know, a little less ego. You know, I don't know really how you change that, but in my view, it's a fundamental thing. This is like a philosophical thing. This is like the underpinnings of our society that has to shift. Otherwise, yep, it's about economics. So don't tell me it's about ESG. Don't tell me it's about impact. Yes, you're interested in those things because that helps you market and it differentiates a sector and it does all these things. But you're not going to fund me because I show you I hit every SDG and my ESG program is spot on. But hey... I might only make 1% return. No, no, no. You're not going to, that. you don't care. You're going to be like, I'm sorry, our mandate is a 12% return. So we can't get in there. Yeah, exactly. And it's, it's kind of how do we navigate, say, if there's 100 impact investors in the world, actually how many of those, you know, are transparent with their kind of metrics of success, be that societal, environmental. And it's okay to have a 1% in there as well, to have great... Really? Or even more, if you can get more, right? Yeah, making, making money and profit in the global south growing is absolutely something that that you know needs to have. And I think that sometimes what we what we can get slagged off about, people will often say, "Oh, you're not allowed to make profit in this." Well, no, you, you are allowed to make profit, but it's just this this huge quick turnaround in time. Well, let, let, let's be clear: Sun Exchange is a for-profit company, right? We are a for-profit company and we try to deliver returns to the people that fund our solar projects but what happens is somebody looks at a school or a, a, a non-profit they say well they don't have any assets we're not going to put solar on that thing what if they don't pay what am i going to do i can't go claim any assets back i'm going to be out and i'm like well first they need power so why would they not pay for their power they need it out of everything else they need power you can't do anything without power okay right? Second, the history that if you look at microcredit markets and small bar, they pay. They have better repayment rates than other sectors. It's just that when you run their balance sheet through your credit rating profile that you develop for a European business, it comes out as a fail. But there's no social metric added to that. Yeah. No environmental metric that has a weight in that says, okay, you know what? We're pretty confident they'll pay. Out of our 70 power plants, we don't have anyone that defaults. We've only had people that have had 
some cash flow constraints that's based on seasonality, but everybody lands up paying because why? Because we're going to be switching off their power plant and then what are they going to do? Exactly. And I guess if they're then being put in a position where for a lot of these, they're maybe having power for the first time. I mean, wow, how empowering is that? For them, their families, their children to be able to study, things like that across uh, across many different kind of human levels, I guess. That's that's going to be your your priority for payment, not like the Western world where it's like, oh, I'll go and have right. my nails done and I might <laughs> have right. spend £3.50 on a coffee. So, right. yeah, so, I think I mean, it's like... So I was just going to say, I think that, that, that one of the solutions we've been looking for that hmm. may help this marketplace, right... Is because donor models in the emerging market are dangerous because they they distort market prices, right? So if you have big donors coming in deploying lots of free solar, it's hard for other people to compete or greatly subsidize solar. People that are trying to create real businesses struggle, right? Right. So you've got to be careful about distorting markets. And that's why a lot of African economies don't like the donor model because it distorts the market and doesn't create viable free enterprise. That said, you could have the UN or the UK government, somebody could say, you know what, we're putting together a $20 billion insurance fund and all the solar projects in those markets can apply for access to this insurance fund so that private investors can come to the party and say, okay, cool, we'll take on that risk. We think we're going to get 11%. But if that guy goes belly up, We've got this insurance to cover us for X amount. And, you know, so it's like a global fund to enable private sector to operate with an insurance guarantee sitting behind it. So like yeah. kind of like what banks have, right? In the US, they call it FDIC, right? I don't know what they call it in the UK, but I'm sure there's some kind of insurance, your first hundred thousand pounds or whatever it is you know probably less but you know is insured it's something like that so it's first loss insurance so okay cool i'll at least get my initial investment back less what i've received already cool i'm willing to work with that company because i have access to it that's one solution that i haven't seen come about because i think part of what's going on in the marketplace right now is that everybody's looking at these nice clean tech solutions that have been deployed in europe and america to upgrade the grid to a smart grid to put new meters on your house to do this to do that all great things but i bet you they're playing at the margin but people are are more comfortable with those markets versus in Africa and other parts of the world, you would have a much bigger direct impact on the energy supply, reduce carbon emissions and electrify unelectrified regions, which lowers healthcare costs, which increases economic yeah. which helps children, girls, boys learn. Like it has all these positive, no economy can grow without electricity. You have to have electricity in the economy. No, then- 100%. And do you think, uh, just kind of last question, but... Do you think that there is a fear globally that essentially we, we don't really want the global south to, to grow and have a basic level of healthcare, education, food, nutrition? Um, because for me, it's like I can just imagine what if the global south did get to that level? How would that fundamentally shift the way we work as a world? That sounds like a bit of a 
bit of a hard question to answer. But do you think there is a fear that we don't want the global south to to grow? Maybe a subconscious fear. I think I think maybe from like the the big guy. Look, if the global south grows and reaches the same standards of living as the Europeans and Americans and consumes at the same, but we're we're up a creek. Like that's not going to work, right? So the biggest fear would probably be that yes, it could break the global economy in its current form. That maybe isn't the worst thing in the world, um, but I, I think it's more. You know, I just think that this is a long-running historical way in which the global north has looked at the global south and the way our media and our political systems and our education have propagated certain views of the global south as a little like a uh, story around my experience around that you know i look, i'm a white guy from from africa my family's lived here six generations i moved to america people don't consider me african they ask they consider me european right fine okay then i go through the immigration process I get my green card from the American government that says country of origin, Africa, not mm. South Africa, Africa, right? That's a continent, not a country. But that's the mindset, right? When you talk to people, they can't, most Europeans and Americans don't understand, you know, they maybe know about Cape Town and then the rest is like Africa. It's like, there's nothing really there. There's nothing, there's nothing really going on except poverty and war. And I think that it's very simplistic, but in Africa, if you go to, to African cities, there's a real effort in Africa from the ground up trying to fight against that perception. We have our own arts, we have our own fashion, we have our own music, we have our own trajectories. And we're yeah. uh, Kenya and Nigeria and Senegal and South Africa are different. And even within them, they're different. Just like Europe, yeah. France and Germany are different. But you guys are like right next door to each other. Yeah, but you're, you're fundamentally different in the way you'd like to think and talk. You know, the UK is a great example. It's a tiny little island. And I think, you know, seven different, you know, <laughs> peoples, you know. So I just think it's a lack of that nuance. And so yeah. people, people... People think, you know, so they, they, they don't see it as part of the problem, nor part of the solution, I think. Um, I think it's a dangerous place to be because there's not really that understanding or relevance of how amazing the continent of Africa is, because it is the biggest continent. It's bloody massive. Uh, and I've been privileged to travel in various different countries in Africa. I actually, you know, as, as listeners will know, I actually got married in Africa. So I think, you know, it, this boils down to two things for me. And I think one of them is education and awareness. And two is about systems change, I think, fundamentally. Um, but listen, I'm, yeah, I could carry on talking about this and, you know, go, go, going through this. But it's been amazing to talk to you. And I just want to say, if anyone wants to have a little look, please do go on the sunexchange.com. Um, and as Sal kind of said earlier, you can go really, really small or you can go really, really big. So personally or corporately, please do check these guys out. They're, what they're doing is incredible. They've got all the case studies on the website um, as well. So 
So thank you so much for coming on. I hope that um, we do see this, the, the dial shift. You know, the reality is we've only got about, you know, till 2050, um, so <laughs> 2030, you know, if we're, if we're really lucky. But um, yeah, thank you so, so much for coming on and talking about uh, the challenges that you face. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much. You're welcome. You're welcome. So that's it. You've made it. The show's over. Thank you for being with us. I hope you've been able to take something away, maybe solve a problem, or just know you're not alone. Here's hoping it made you smile with a few laughs along the way. Please feel free to find me on all social media channels, and you can subscribe to my YouTube channel. Just search the Road and Morale podcast. Have an awesome day, and see you next time. <laughs>